Welcome back, everyone, to a brand new episode of Latinos Who Tech, a podcast to help you take your career to the next level. I'm absolutely thrilled to have you with us today. My name is Hugo Castellanos. In 2016, a study out of the University of California, San Diego, stated that there were 587 Latino faculty members in the United States. Out of those 587, 485 were men, and only 102 of them were women. Today we spoke with one of those 102. Maria Antonieta Gutierrez Soto is an assistant professor at the School of Engineering, Design, and Innovation at Penn State University. A trailblazing Latina professor, she is focused on what I like to call disaster engineering, so structural controls for earthquakes and tsunamis, she also does a lot of work in the area of biomimicry. So how can we study nature and basically copy the millions of years of evolution that nature has done to create natural structures and how we can replicate that in human-made structures? We'll be diving deep into her journey, pursuing a career in academia. If you ever wonder what it's like to get a PhD and then make it as a professor in engineering or STEM, this episode is for you. We'll be discussing what it takes to become the, a professor and also getting a sneak peek into day-to-day -day life. What is grant writing? What is it like to run your own lab and pick your own research focus and all of those fun things. Now, before we kick off this fantastic conversation, I have a favor to ask you. Can you please take five minutes and fill out a small survey in the show notes? It's about getting to know you a bit better and knowing which episode subjects you want to have for future episodes. I, can, I don't want to build this podcast in a vacuum. I want to make sure that it adds value to you. So if you could just click on that link in the show notes and fill it out. It will mean the world to me. So without further ado, let's dive right into this conversation with La Doctora Maria Antonieta Gutierrez Soto. Thank you. Maria Antonieta, welcome to the show. I really appreciate you making the time. Thank and you for the opportunity. I am a big fan of your podcast, so it's a great opportunity to be here and have a conversation. Definitely. And I want to start with an icebreaker. So let's suppose that something magical happens and all of a sudden you find that you have an extra 10 hours in your week. Nobody else has it, only you have it, an extra 10 hours. So a little bit more of a working day, eight hours. Like You have 10 extra hours that you can do anything you want with it. I'm curious on how would you go about spending that? Anything you want, like more sleep, more study. Like I'm curious on what would you spend that time, that extra time on? I love my job, Hugo. I would just fill it with more meeting. Isn't that sad? <laughs> I would just try to catch up on all the wonderful people that I haven't had the chance to catch up since the beginning of the semester. Because I always feel like there are just so many amazing people that we're like, oh, yeah, let's meet and catch up or let, oh, let's come over, have this conversation. And there's all these other 
projects that I can't wait to get started. So it's almost like I'm on, I have different projects that are ongoing. There mm -hmm. are like at different levels of progress. There are some that are almost out that I'm super excited to get out. And if I had those 10 extra hours, I'm like, oh, I haven't had a chance to catch up on what other people are doing. And oh, I wonder what, she, oh, she's probably back from that trip. So let's catch up and find out what's happening in South Africa or what did she do at that other event that it was like super cool that she was looking forward to. So those, that's, yeah, I just fill it out with more work, which is hilarious. But that's really a lot of joy for me. So it would just be a lot of fun to do if I had just 10 more hours math another day. Yeah. Definitely. That's the litmus test, right? It's your time. So you spend it any which way you want. And, but that's great that you would fill it with work because that means that you're doing, you're at the right job. Yeah, no, honestly. Yeah, it's exactly what you just said. Yeah. And I think mm -hmm. that's one of the things that makes my job what it is, right? It's just very, like, I'm my own boss, right? And in some ways, you know, I, right now, right? Like today I am talking to you and I got to decide that. And if I want to spend the rest of the day at my house and work from home, I can. And if I want to have other meetings and I want to talk to, like I decide what to do on my day to day. And some, the only fixed times that I have something to do is my classes. And those are very scheduled and you have a particular room where you need to be and that's it like even if you go to the desk the chair or anybody says, hey where is professor Gutierrez Soto doing where is she at and nobody would know like <laughs> it's like there's the only very specific times in the classroom but any other time it's really up to me on how I want to spend it where I want to spend it and even then do probably anybody has been at university there have been some days the professor decided to cancel class, right? Or, oh, you know what? We're just going to have it on Zoom today because I happen to be out of town and I would, or the next two classes are going to be on Zoom. And nowadays, right, that's perfectly acceptable and people jump in on a Zoom call and nobody will think that it will be weird. It'd just be like, oh, yeah, great. I, but that's the kind of flexibility that this job has that, yeah on that end. That's a long way of answering that question. No, but, but that's fantastic. That's exactly what this is about, double clicking on it. And, and I remember being on the other side when I was in college, when the professor would be at a Congress at an academic conference, and they would send a postdoc or a TA also. Uh, to teach the class. And I remember seeing those. Now I get it. <laughs> now I get it. But I remember seeing like the super scared, like first year PhD student. They're probably from somewhere outside the U.S. and they're talking to an auditorium of 300 people. <laughs> so as I remember seeing them and then, oh, wow, like I, that, that seems like a difficult job. And yeah, if you've never done that, like public speaking in front of a bunch of people. Yeah. And now I get it. <laughs> Absolutely. The spot hmm? based on what it's like to be in the professor's shoes, which is always good. Yeah. So tell me a bit about yourself and about how you decided to study in the U.S. and getting into academia. Thank you for that lovely question. It's a, my story is very unique. I think not many people can share that, but everybody has their journey, right? So my journey starts at back home. I grew up. Tennis was my life, right? So I was actually a high-performance athlete 
and me and my sister were playing tennis all day, every day. And we were lucky enough that we got offered full ride to go to the U.S. and play tennis. And that's where, you know, that made that decision to be able to go to the U.S. and still get an education and continue to compete at the high level. So we played NCAA Division I tennis at Lamar University. And that's where my journey started in the U.S., and I played tennis all four years, and it was really wonderful. We won conference and participated on the All-American. It was just a lot of fun to be in that environment about college life and as a student athlete and everything that comes with that and being able to pursue a degree on the side, right? But I really wanted to do something in engineering because I always love to do that and being able to do Civil engineering and tennis at the same time was also very challenging, but also a lot of fun. And that's how I came to the U.S. Yeah. That's very interesting because the fact that, I mean, working, and I will say, I will use the word, the word working because working as a performance athlete and spending all those hours practicing and traveling to meets and training and making sure that you don't get injured and all that. That's like a full-time job while also pursuing a very challenging major. I'm curious on how do you make it work? How do you, what kind of habits you built into your system to make it work? Yeah, no, that's a really great question. And I think it's also because growing up in Venezuela, right? And and trying to even find a court that is empty in Caracas, where it's the capital and even finding an empty court was also challenging. I feel like we grew up on that environment where we were trying, always seeking looking for opportunities and things like that. And when I came to the U.S. and we started and they told me, sure, if you want to do engineering, you can start there. Sure. Everybody wants to achieve their dreams. And I, it was like, let's give it a try. And I think because we were, I was in in that environment where you're constantly pushing yourself to be a better player and you're constantly being coached and you're trying to achieve the best personal record and things like that. Is that day-to-day commitment to doing the best that you can because your team is counting on you and your family is counting on you and you have all these different responsibilities and you really want to be able to perform at your best to achieve that day-to-day thing. And it's not, it's an hour to hour is being able to commit to getting your physical training right and making sure that you had your meals, everything that you consume, right? was very important for your performance. Everything that you do is for that. And I feel like that mentality of, okay, you know, like, what do I need to do? What do I need to sacrifice? Do I need to do the extra mile, right? I need to wake up at 5 a.m. and go for a run for 45 minutes. That takes a certain commitment, right? Like people are half, half asleep by the time they actually wake up by the end of the training, right? That kind of thing. And I do think that because we have been challenged in those ways and we still be able to commit, I was able to transfer those skills to my education and still be able to like, yeah, like I need to get that chemistry lab, even though that the lab is on Friday and I'm it's Thursday and I have to do the pre-lab in the band while everybody's sleeping after the match. I will get that sheet of paper, that worksheet and try to fill it out and things like that. And it was also challenging in some ways, but it was also a way to prove yourself because in some ways, I was also the only woman in the classroom. And it was also like, oh, now I have to prove myself too. And sometimes you tend to feel like maybe you shouldn't be there. But for me, 
I think it was more like a chance to prove myself. And it's almost like because I'm the only woman, now I have to be the best in the class. And so it was also very, it was an interesting environment, I think, because when you are in the classroom, they're like, oh, but you're an athlete, so you probably won't do well. Or when you're Mm -hmm. an athlete and then the other athletes will be like, oh, but you're pursuing engineering, so your tennis is probably not going to be great. So you're constantly, no. From both sides, you have all that negativity. mm -hmm. Challenging you in those identities. And then I was like, you know what? Then there's no way out, right? Now I have to graduate with a 4.0 and I have to be undefeated on my senior year, which I ended up doing that. And it also triggered a lot of awards on my senior year where I was like selected as the ASE senior of the year. And I was also the first team athlete which was like meaning meaning that in my position I was the I was undefeated so I was undefeated my senior year and it was a huge accomplishment as an athlete but also being able to be the best student too so it was also like how are you getting good grades if you have missed two weeks of classes and I'm like I'm catching up and to be honest the professors made a big difference for me in my education And they love teaching and I learned a ton and I had a great group of mentors that were like willing to friends and things like that really helped me and shaped how I saw professors being able to help everybody. Right. And the joy that they had in the classroom, I think it also told me, wow, that seems like a fun job. Like he's having a good time. Maybe that will be something I will consider doing maybe later on. But you think about that in 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 reflection. I had great professors that made a big difference in my definitely right that kind of support really did play a role there and I was able to take advantage of those opportunities right because of course you get the distractions that face in college lives and you're like if I pursue this direction but then I really want to prove myself and try to be thankful for the opportunities right because not many people have the opportunity to pursue get a full ride so might as well take advantage of that and learn as much as possible and even just in the decisions right so I I really am thankful for for having that opportunity and my last year of college I actually didn't have tennis so I have finally a free year quote-unquote that I wasn't working like you said but that's a (laughs) full-time so we had and during that senior year I was like okay since I haven't been able to participate in a lot of things, I'm going to participate in all the things that the part of Typical <laughs> overachiever reaction. Okay. Yeah, I was like, what am I Maximalist. Do free time. What am I going to do with all this free time? So I joined the American Society of Civil Engineering Student Organization and I participated on the concrete canoe competition. And I joined, we got, we started the Society of Hispanic Professional Engineering Student Organization, which of course became my favorite organization to be part of. And we went to the convention and fell in love with Shep, of course, and which is so many things that it was wonderful because once you go to the convention, right, all these other opportunities opened up that I had not aware of because I was always in a tennis court. And it was really fascinating because I was like, oh, what are all these companies? And I'm like, oh, structural engineers and all these other companies that are not necessarily civil specific that also right. look structural engineers and I was like oh Boeing and all these different companies and I remember very clearly that I was trying to find in that map with so many companies and getting lost in that in that place and somehow I ended up in the universities and I was like what are the universities even doing in the career fair this is so strange 
And I remember one one like one person that was there, a representative from Ohio State or something like that, was like, hey, have you thought about grad school? And I remember that was like the first time anybody had ever asked me about graduate education. And I was like, ooh, no, I want to pursue. I want to get the money. I want to get out. I want to mm -hmm. go on the industry. I'm trying to find this company. Thank you for that suggestion, but no, thank you. And so it was really interesting. That was like the first time anybody had ever even brought up that opportunity for pursuing a master's or, or anything like that. And later on, because I was part of SHIP and ACE and all of these different engineers without borders too, because I was like, oh, we can go abroad and use my civil engineering degree to help communities that don't have water or access to different things. And I thought that was like a really great way to build society. And being a civil engineer meant that you can provide water, you can provide a shelter for people, you can look at a transportation, right? You can see how civil engineering can really shape and change a society as a whole. And I was just really fascinated to see how you could use that degree, right, as a form of power to really right. the society. And I started attending all these different things, right? Engineering Without Borders and different organizations. And at one of them, they told us, like, if you want to do structural engineering, most people that pursue a degree in structural engineering would probably need a master's degree. And you're like, oh, this is the second time I heard about grad school. And now it turns out that master's in science and engineering, it's a thing. Like that's very important, especially if you're trying to get your PE license and your structural engineering license and all these different things. And it turns out that if you go to grad school, you no longer have a specific set of credits that you can choose, but you have the freedom to just take classes that you're interested in. So I was like, oh, that's really cool. So basically when you're a senior in engineering, you pick electives, right? Technical electives. So classes that, you know, might be interesting, but they're not required. So that, so that kind of, oh, I can learn about concrete design and steel. And at least in civil engineering, you get an introduction to those topics. And then in maybe you need additional training for that. So that makes sense to me. So then I was like, okay, so maybe I should start looking into this graduate school again. And I picked up some of those flyers and things like that. And fast forward, right, I received a fellowship to go to Ohio State. And I was really thankful for that because that also meant that I was like, okay, so this is happening and I'm going to up north and find out more about what this is all about. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. That's fantastic. Quite a journey, especially going from... Yeah, that transition from industry, grad school, that's I'm sure there's a lot of people asking themselves that question every year. And should I get a master? Should I get a PhD? I'm curious, do you still follow tennis? Do you still play for fun? Actually, yes. <laughs> I do. Funny enough, Hugo, days ago, I played mixed doubles with other professors of Penn State who were also college tennis players. Not necessarily <laughs> But they were also playing college back in the day, like 10, 15 years ago or something. So it was actually highly competitive. I'm not going to lie. Like, it was That's like, fantastic. Oh, That's fantastic. You know, and then I show up the next day to the classroom and I'm like stretching and I'm like, oh my goodness, I'm not in shape like I was a long time ago. But it was still a lot of fun to be out there and... We still collaborate. It's just on the changeovers. We talk about research. So what are you working on? I'm working on health sciences. And we still talk about research-related things. But it was just fun. 
Uh, and I think you'd hear about it, right? Like people play golf and then on the changeovers, they talk business, right? I feel like I've seen those on movies. And then I'm playing tennis and, ch- and talking about research on the changeovers. And I thought that was funny. Uh, yeah. So, uh, yeah, that's great. Hey, who knows? Maybe you can get a couple papers out of it and you know, some collaboration. No, they. it's our life, right? We are really nodes and we have a huge network on each side. And a lot of the problems that are facing by society need other disciplines, right? So my co- like the people that I play tennis with, they are in sociology, they are in health sciences, they are like working in food and access and security and water and things like that. And I, my research work right now, it's really focused on natural disasters, right? And when mm-hmm. a natural disaster happens, of course, I'm going to look at the structural engineering perspective to see what happened, right? To my buildings, to my bridges and things like that. But then when you go on the site and you start collecting that kind of data, you find out, wait a minute. This community just had their Walmart, right, destroyed, Mm -hmm. and they don't have access to food anymore. So how are they getting food? So now you bring that perspective, right? And then are people having water? Is the water really a source? Safe. Is the water safe? How long is this community going to be without power or like without a home? How long is that going to take? So there are so many interdependencies. And require all these different disciplines. So it was funny because I was telling them, oh, I work on natural disasters. And he's like, really? Because this other person is looking at the food access of these communities. You should talk to them. And maybe there's something you can work together. Or this geology professor who's looking at other things or flooding that is also happening on the side. So it was just really neat to see how different perspectives are trying to address this very challenging problem that is faced on a daily basis or in all parts of the world, right? Yeah. So tell me a little bit more about professor life. And I'm curious on, you you mentioned a little bit of it, about how you have that freedom of like how you can structure your time your own way. But I'm curious on when you started working as a professor, as an actual professor, like what surprised you the most? Maybe what was the unexpected part of it? Huh, I didn't know I had to do this. Yeah, so there are many things there. So before that, actually, they have these particular workshops. They are called like next professor or future faculty workshops or things like that. And when I was in graduate school pursuing my PhD, my advisor told me, said, hey, now that you're about one year or two away from that, let's go for these events. And so you become aware because even when you're pursuing your PhD, you can still look at working on a research lab or pursuing a degree, um, research development position in companies, right? So the industry and all these other opportunities are still there, right? And if anything, you become more specialized on other fields, right? Yes, my bachelor's was in civil engineering with a focus in structures. But during grad school, I took classes in signal processing and control mm-hmm. engineering and industrial engineering. And I just actually opened up in a lot of things that I became a data scientist, quote unquote, and things like that. So Actually, industry positions even opened up a lot more because I just had a lot more background and opportunities to pursue. So I even, I remember having offers from airlines and things like that, just because I had that background for addressing some of these really challenging issues like pouring forensic engineering. So anyways, so, you know, even when I was at PhD, I was like, should I even pursue academia? Like, I'm not really sure if I really want to just have the same class over and over again. Grading looks horrible. Who will take that job? That seems like a, 
I don't know. That doesn't seem like a lot of fun to me. So I went on this workshop training. And it was really interesting because it really opened up on what professor life looks like. Mm. There's a myriad of opportunities too in there because there are tenure lines and non-tenure line positions. They actually mm-hmm. have positions where it's just teaching or positions where you do just research and you don't have any teaching. So you have these very specific things. And then you have just a standard professor that has a little bit of teaching, a little bit of research and a little bit of service, right? Which is like the most common but you do have the clinical faculty positions and you have all these other positions and there's also these administrative positions, right? And you're like administrative position. And when I was in school, I don't think I ever look up what the vice research assistant, like all these different mm-hmm. positions that associate dean for the college. The provost or yeah, what, what have you. Exactly. So it was really interesting to find out what does the dean of the College of Engineering do? What does the chair of the Department in Civil Engineering do? What is their role? Why would anybody want to do that kind of job? And it was fascinating because of some of these events, they actually had a panel with deans of the College of Engineering from some of the really top universities. And you get to hear from their perspectives, what is their day-to-day job look like? And for me, it was really fascinating to see how you have a seat at the table and you can set up a vision for what you want the college to value, right? So if you want sustainability to be like the number one thing, then everybody has to align or find a way to make sure that's the case, right? And if you wanted to have diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging, if that's like something that you really value and you want that to be a priority for the college, then that trickles down. So it really depends on having that seat at the table and being able to advocate for certain things that really do have an important value for you, right? Or that you see that is necessary for society. So it was just interesting to see how those roles change it because I also noticed that the chair of the department, for example, and I remember this, somebody shared that it's no longer what that professor does. It's more like, how can I help the other faculty so they can achieve their goals? And I really like that being able to lift others up and like finding ways to connect people to other things and opportunities, because the more you are in a certain role, you learn more about what what is out there and being able to connect you to, oh, you're pursuing this research. Let me connect you to this NASA person or Lockheed Martin person or like being able to establish those connections. I thought that was neat to have. And it's very different, right? Because when you're a professor, you're paving yourself or a group or something where you're trying to set your mark, right? You're trying to be well-known for a certain something. But when you're a dean, you're everybody. Like, okay, how can I lift everybody up? I kind of like Remove that. the roadblocks. Like make sure that they're working on what they're best at. Yeah, and being able to have that seat at the table because sometimes you see things and you're like, what? This is not changing. And just, and also like when I was at Ohio State, I saw how different chairs in the civil engineering department when they were in that certain position, right? Like when they, when they became chairs, they you saw how everything changed in that department. You're like, oh, that's interesting. Like I remember one time there was this professor and she really valued equity. And one of the first things that we started seeing is like, like the woman's bathroom all of a sudden changed because it needed to have a place for maternity, right? It was just mm-hmm. little, little things that trickled down everywhere. And I was just like, whoa, wow, this is really interesting. Or so it was just like, 
interesting to see the kind of influence that people can have for the better for everybody. So I was just neat to see that. In my day-to-day professor, right? So now that I'm a professor, yes, I knew I was going to teach and I knew I was going to have the opportunity to mentor students and things like that. I knew that being a Latina professor was not common. And one of the things that I was going to get a lot immediately was probably a lot of questions from all my women in engineering students and a lot of smaller students, right? So what that means is that there's all these wonderful people that need to speak to someone that understands, right? To have someone that can have those shared experiences. And that means that we get a lot of service, right? We, get, we have a lot more mentoring and a lot of really great opportunities to do those roles. And there's other things within the department that I just was not aware of, like the research committee, the service committee, the other, there's a lot of things within the university. Yeah, writing for grants, making sure that your lab is funded, that you can keep the lights on. and Exactly, exactly. So we were like, okay, so I want to pursue research, right? I want to have my own lab. I want to have my future dream center, right? Where we have extraterrestrial habitats and all these wonderful things. And I'm like, okay, so if I want to achieve that, then I need students, right? Because students are the ones that are pursuing those ideas and have more creative, wonderful things. You're like, great, how do I get students? You need to pay for them, right? Like you need to get tuition, you need to pay them stipend, you need to pay them health insurance, you need to be able to give them something so they can live, right? So that's important. And I was like, oh, that's very important because I want to be able to provide the same opportunities that I received to somebody else, right? Because that can really change your life. So in order to do that though, you need money. And that's where that proposal comes in. So it's not really, oh, I want to get proposal money because I want to say I received 1 million grant from NIH or 2 million from NSF. It's more, oh, I need money because I need to have students so they can pursue their research so they can Mm -hmm. have opportunities and we can achieve this goal of scientific understanding about something together. So it's all an encompassing thing that I think is something that I didn't realize it was such a big deal. I think and, that- and I have a question about that because I, and again, I think that this is a question that we could write a whole book about, maybe do like a 10 episode podcast series because I'm looking at the incentives, right? And when I see that there are, they, they are these NSF grants or these grants from industry. I'm curious on, do professors ever like switch their language when they're writing for the grant or change the scope of their research? Oh yeah, like I research structures, but because there's this a million dollar check from company XYZ that wants to study structures that do A, yeah, let's do that research instead. Are these things that the professors are thinking about? Are these things that happen? I love this question, Ugo. This is such a cool thing. So for me, those are more like design prompts or opportunities. Like okay. I love ideas. Like I'm an idea euphoria. Just give me an idea and I'll we'll figure it out thing. Break it down. Yeah. So for me, it's really fascinating because sometimes NSF or certain agencies, right, will say, these are the 10 priorities. These are the 10 big ideas. These are the big things that we care about. NASA will have a big ideas challenge too. So they will trickle down these priorities. And they might say, I think energy efficiency systems is important, right? And 
I'm like, I done structural engineering, vibration control, right? And it's like, how do I, how do I, how do energy efficiency? That's important. So let's figure this out, right? So how do we work on this topic? So me, it's really interesting because a lot of times, or at least some of these agencies, there's not one solution. So it's not, they're going to say, we need a structural engineer expert on earthquake engineering, something very specific. It doesn't exist, right? They just tell you something broad. So for example, they have these human buildings and natural disasters, something like that. And you're like human buildings and natural disasters. Okay. So I do buildings. I do natural disasters. I need this human thing, right? So then you look and you find out who else is doing human-related research, who's looking at studying population, vulnerable communities, right? So then it's just, it's almost like, who do I want in my team? Who do I know? How do we make our uh, priority? And sometimes these design prompts. So for example, I'll give you a concrete example. We have a center for living in multifunctional materials, right? Mm. Multifunctional materials. That sounds fascinating. And then they have a seed grant. So they say the only requirement is that you can collaborate with a professor at University of Freiburg. And you're like, I I need that money so I can fund a student, right? So that's like the initial incentive, right? So you're like, okay, I really do need to fund this student because they, they need to be able to do that. And then you're like, who can I collaborate at University of Freiburg, which is the only requirement, right? So that's the, the initial thing. So I look up the website and start looking at people. And then you're like, wait a minute, that's actually pretty cool. They're doing what? So they have this center where they basically allow you to share a little bit of what you do. They make it because professors can talk forever. You can tell, right? So, of course. So no we, issue there. There's no shyness here. <laughs> right? So they say, you only have five minutes. And you're like, five minutes? What can I share in five minutes? So they really make these lightning talks to make sure that everybody gets to share just a little bit about what they do. Basically, just three slides, right? This is what I do, and this is what I'm going, and this is where I need help with, right? And this is what I can offer to whoever wants, to whoever's interested, right? So it was really neat because I was able to share that we do vibration control buildings, adaptivity, and extreme events, right? And we talked to another colleague and so on and so forth, right? So then you started seeing those connections and a potential collaboration. And we, we, I connected with one of the professors there and we have two amazing projects going on that are just, it will never have happened, have it not have this kind of incentive, but it has really provided a lot of fruit because we have continuously collaborated. We, got, we had two different projects with two different crazy ideas because they're experts in material science, metamaterials, and all these wonderful things that I have no idea about. But somehow we managed to collaborate and has been such a fascinating exchange and the students are motivated. And now where they have a, they're hosting a conference in Germany and the students are motivated to present there because they'll get to see the lab and they see all these shape morphing systems and how can we use that for our application because they're looking at nanoscale applications and we're looking at really large scale applications. So it's okay. How do we work together? And this is fascinating. How do you get your material to deform and change? What is that? So how can we do that for a facade or can we do that underground? Can we put it on the soil? Can we put it underneath the column? Like how do we work together? It's just being really a lot of fun and Yes. So in some ways we do tend to adapt to what is needed, but we have so many skills and I'm not afraid of taking risks, obviously. So for me, that's a lot of fun. Like I think I find 
exciting and motivating to have these experiential exchanges and try to figure out, okay, this is what I bring to the table. What do you bring to the table? If you're an experimentalist and I'm a computational person, okay, how do we work together? And if we have this little thing, how about who else do we need on this team? So sometimes that what that's what makes it really exciting because other ideas will show up and then now the team is bigger and then the project becomes really fascinating and a lot of fun to enjoy. And of course, time consuming, right? Now you can see how... <laughs> meetings become a lot more meetings and we need to have more people but yeah and and i think that that piece of and it comes down to this piece of human nature that i feel like constraints fuel innovation to some extent because think about it if you have unlimited money unlimited time we're just gonna go chill and hang out at the pool (laughs) <laughs> to some extent, I'm, I'm exaggerating here, but uh, but if there's some constraints, okay, we have to have a paper or we have to, we only have a runway f- one year funding for this student. So we have to get things done to some extent. Yep. And that's why I think you, you mentioned it, right? So we have different skills, right? So we, one person may see 10 years from now, this is where I think we could go. And then some people may see, okay, what are the immediate steps? So yes, this sounds like a really great project for 10 years. What should we do on the first five? And what should we do on year one? And how many students do we need? And who do we need to connect with? Because sometimes maybe we need to connect to our community, right? Maybe we need to look at what other resources are out there to make it really interesting. So my question is, and this is where the Soto Structures Lab has their chance to shine. I'm curious on how do you find that right laugh or that right advisor? What advice do you have for someone that is out there that it's curious about research, is passionate about research like you are? And listen, like I have all this energy, have all this motivation, but I'm curious on finding the right fit because in the industry is fairly easy. You know, like you'd like to find a lot of people that work at company X and I can just do informational interviews with everybody that I know that works at Company X. For labs, things like that, it can be a bit more challenging or maybe I'm completely wrong, but I don't know. But I'm curious on on how would you go about it? What advice do you have for somebody that is looking for the right lab, the right advisor, the right focus for grad school? Yeah, that's a really great question. So there are a couple of different things that I think will help because a lot of times, You don't know if you like research. Maybe you like the idea of research, but Mm. you have never done research yourself. So you really don't know what it entails. So for me, my suggestion would be if you are an undergraduate student and you think research might be a good experience because research can show up on a resume, right? And it could be counted as professional experience, research experience there, especially if you're a freshman, right? Maybe you're a first year and you don't have the the background to pursue an internship in a certain industry where they require you to be a junior level. But pursuing a research experience as an undergrad, I think is a really good first taste on what research could entail. And I feel like it strengthens different skill sets. So for me, I think having that is really important because it builds up on the skills that might be needed later on. So if it's programming, if it's learning how to use a special experimental equipment, if it's learning about what is a literature review is the first time you're probably going to research a research article. And that's a different type of 
reading than a report or a textbook or anything else, because a lot of times people are relying a lot on videos on YouTube, right? Different other venues of information and technical papers are sometimes difficult to digest. And if that's not something you are trained on, then maybe you won't enjoy it as much, right? So for me, I think when I'm looking at students, for example, if I see a student that's really good at programming, if I see students that have already done some research, that's always a plus. If they have participated at a conference, even the CHEP convention, right? The CHEP convention does have competitions for technical presentations. It shows me that at least they have tried it a little bit before. Uh, it gives you that, just like any other company, right? You have a certain job description and you try to fit that job description skills. And some job descriptions will say, I want somebody that knows how to use Microsoft Office. I want people that know how to use this particular software package. Could it be SolidWorks or program, very similar things like that. And I think there are certain things in different fields that do require certain things like that. So that will be my suggestion to just look at those announcements because there are announcements right now for PhD positions or master level positions. And if you read them, they will say, we're interested in somebody with this kind of background, preferably if they know how to use Python, if they know right. how to do this and that. So in some ways, having those skill sets will help. And some of these skill sets will be good for both industry and research, right? So programming is always a good option, even if you think you may not need it, but they have so many certificates now online, having those digital credentials help and just trying to see if that's an area that you want to pursue further. For me, I actually do to see students that have that a sport, right? I want to support athletes. So if I see student athletes that are interested in pursuing grad school, those will be really great students because for me, they tell me that they can be coachable because a lot of times what is about grad school is learning about how to learn. It's learning is no longer a professor that's giving you the knowledge, but it's you being able to find out what is your learning style and what works for you and how are you learning on your own. So if I know a certain software, I need to learn a new one, then do I have what it takes to learn this new software to accomplish a final goal? So I think that's also something that you learn when you're in grad school and being able to be coachable. That means that if I'm able to provide you with feedback and you get better as time goes, then that's always good. Because sometimes if you're a perfect student, quote unquote, academically, you have never failed before, you have never done anything and then you come to grad school and all of a sudden you find out that the answer is not on the back of the book, that not everything, you are actually pursuing new knowledge, right? So a lot of times that can be really intimidating to someone that is not willing to take risks. And that's, for me, that, that might be difficult because I like to pursue ideas that are really challenging and we're probably going to be the first ones trying to do that. And it might work, it might not work, and we're still going to learn about it. So mm -hmm. for me, it's more like pursuing, would it work? I don't know. Let's figure it out. So for me, that's the kind of mentality. And we're looking at 3D printed structures and are they going to survive earthquakes? Nobody has done it before. Let's figure it out. Should we instrument this? How would 3D printed structures adapt to different environments? And then I have a student who's a second year student who just joined my lab uh, a couple of weeks ago. And he said, I want to do everything that dream structures are doing, but I want to do it in the moon and Mars. And I was like, 
welcome to the lab. Like this, <laughs> that's exactly the attitude that we're looking for because he's a second year. He has not taken any courses, but he already has the mentality of let's pursue this further. I'm willing to take the risk. I'm willing to learn. I want to see origami deployable mechanisms. I want to look at inflatable structures. And for me, that's an opportunity to learn about something cool and new that I have never pursued before. And it's also inspiring to other people in the lab, right? Because they might be looking at biomimicry for certain things, or they're looking at smart materials, or they're collaborating with this other international collaboration. And it's it builds upon each other. And I think it's just really exciting to have people in the lab who have backgrounds in architectural, mechanical engineering, civil engineering, and sociology. Like I welcome pretty much anybody who's willing to really take risks and collaborate and be able to pursue knowledge and have that kind of teamwork and also self-motivating attitude. That's fantastic. That's fantastic. That's really helpful. Really yeah. helpful. And I know. Um, and I'm that origami deploying mechanisms, that sounds amazing. Like I want you to send me the paper where you found that. That sounds really cool. <laughs> no, and I think that's what the joy of research is because I'm my own lab, right? Like we, we pursue ideas. Like they may or may not happen, but I'm not in a job in the real world, quote unquote, where if it fails, that means that the client and all these other things that are really serious for us, it's like we're pursuing ideas and if they work, great, but we'll continue to work on this. And if I decide that I don't want to pursue that idea anymore, I just change the topic and I just put another project going on. But in my lab, so right now I'm an assistant professor in the School of Engineering, Design and Innovation. Right. So my background is in civil engineering structures, but I work in the School of Engineering Design Innovation. What is that? It's not civil engineering. It's not the Department of Industrial Engineering. It's Engineering Design Innovation. And for me, that was really what attracted me to Penn State because exactly what you just said, that my, my next door neighbor, she looks at the material side of natural disasters and global development. And the person next to her works on origami and compliance mechanisms from the mechanical engineering perspective. And the person next to him works on additive manufacturing for different systems, right? So they have looked at making 3D printed things for different lattices. And I said, what if we make them out of steel in a larger scale? Would they perform the same as a beam? Nobody knows. The person next to him it works on industrial engineering and then biomedical engineering. And there's another professor. We have a law policy in engineering, which is a completely new program, very unique. And they're looking at social justice and they're looking at justice and engineering. They have a PhD in anthropology. They actually have lawyers with a law office and everything. So when you look at natural disasters, being able to influence policy and things like that is super important. And we have the entrepreneurship engineering, which also means that students can get started a startup. They can get money for their own business ideas. And that's one of the goals of that program, being able to have your own startup by the time you graduate. They have leadership engineering. And I'm, what's amazing, right? So you, for me, it was just really neat to be the only civil engineering in that department that had that background and being able to interact with all these different disciplines to pursue great ideas. So I've been co-advising a lot and I have affiliations in architectural engineering, affiliations in civil engineering, but my home is still in school engineering design innovation where they embrace this myriad of ideas. And I guess I wanted to just mention that 
not all the labs are the same. So the, the feedback that I'm providing is from my perspective, but I know very well that different professors have different cultures in their lab, which is also something that you can do as a professor. You decide what your culture looks like. And for me, I come from chef, right? So we have a chef familia in my lab and I, we embrace that no matter where you're coming from. This is a family. We help each other out. If somebody's coming for the first time, we're picking you up at the airport. We're taking you all over wherever you need. And if they are not giving you your apartment right away, you know, you'll have a place to stay. We'll, we'll, we're a family, right? And then it pays forward, right? I think it's just not many labs will do that kind of, I think we, we do way too much. But I do think that because we make that intentionality in our lab, it means that people are willing to respond, right? Because they're no longer just a regular job. It's something where they feel like they're, they're cared for. And I think that's the kind of thing that is something that we as professors are able to influence. And we get to decide who joins our lab. Just like somebody looked at my profile and said, I would like to give you that opportunity. And I like to be able to be in those positions. And for me to be able to pursue even more crazy ideas, that means that I have to write more grants and get more opportunities to interact with industry, right? Because some professors do have contracts with Ford and some other industries that will fund some of these research projects. So it really depends on the professor and the area and what they're willing to work on. Thank you for painting that picture. That's very complete. And with that, I want to say thank you so much for your time. I, I really appreciate it. And I'll make sure to add in the show notes, the link to your lab. So people can check it out. And if we have any graduate school curious people that they can check it out. They're curious about the structures, the structural engineering and that innovation aspect. Because I think, again, it's a blank canvas, right? You can do anything you want with it. Yeah, thank you so much for the opportunity to share our stories and being able to provide some insight about what research life looks like. And I welcome anybody that wants to ask questions or just learn a little bit more about what grad school can have to connect with students and alumni and so on and so forth. So thank you again for the opportunity. Happy to have you. And this is your home. So anytime that you want to broadcast something, <laughs> you're welcome here anytime. Thank you so much. Thank you. Take care, Hugo.